0: Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters. We couldn't be more honored to have this guest join us today. Dr. Alan Shroff of the University of Minnesota Institute of Child Development joins my co-host Sue Marriott and they discuss his 40 years of research on attachment. Now the number of books, articles, and academic studies he's published is, is really unfathomable. And you can see a list of, of many of those in our show notes. But for now, suffice it to say that he's the probably one of the most authoritative and premier attachment researchers out there. So you can imagine how happy we are to have him on the show. Specifically, they discuss what he's learned from his longitudinal work, which and he's been able to follow groups of children all the way from birth through adulthood. So he has a rich, rich depth of knowledge and outcomes to share. And Sue picks his brain on what he believes is the need to know on attachments. So now a quick aside, speaking of research, we are thrilled to say that the first study validating the treatment ideas of David Elliott have just been published. And so for those of you new to the podcast, David Elliott is the co-author of Attachment Disturbances in Adults, Treatment for Comprehensive Repair. And he was also our guest on episode, I believe, 34. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I'd really recommend it. Now, we are excited to be bringing him to Austin, Texas on April 7th for a conference. And we are proudly co-sponsored for that conference by Austin in Connection. So if you haven't had a chance to sign up, go to therapistuncensored.com backslash events. While there, you could also sign up for our reading group. And for those of you that aren't able to come, to the conference, maybe you're out of the country, sign up for that reading group. We're gonna look at his book in an adept way. All right, so let's get started. For today's interview, let's jump in. We pick up with Dr. Shroof speaking about the central organizing question of their study.
1: From the beginning, had in mind the question, how do each of us evolve the particular worldview we have? How do we come to think of ourselves the way we do? How do we come to think of others the way we do? How do we come to think of relationships the way we do? And we believed quite strongly that there was only one way to answer a question such as that, which is you have to have observed the life experiences of each of these individuals. So when I saw children in a nursery school behaving in different ways, I wanted to know what did they experience over the course of their lives before that, that led them to be the way they are? And how would the experiences they were now having in in the preschool combine with the earlier experiences to forecast what they would be like later? So that's where we started, and we studied these children in great detail at every age.
2: That's right. So this study started back in 1976, is that correct?
1: Actually, in 1974, we began recruiting women who were expecting babies. The first children were born in 1975. We recruited them over a two-year period, so they were born across 1975 and 76.
2: And the study's continuing, I presume. Yes. So basically what this gives us, for the audience out there, is... We can do slices of research and look at people moment by moment, but this is one where that they have a large group that they have followed over time, so you get... A lot of the complexity and a lot of what happens. I, I'm hoping that you can talk to us some about what remains consistent and then also what about change and why isn't it a perfect correlation. Earn security in particular is something that we're very interested in when we have a hard background starting but we want to move to, towards more security in our adult lives.
1: It turns out that change is just as coherent and understandable and lawful as is continuity. So we we were interested from the beginning in change, and this is one reason that we studied not just the children and not just their early experiences of care, but we studied the life circumstances of their families and how those changed over time. And we studied, for example, things like the depression in the parents as it waxed and waned. How did this impact the child's development? and we studied the social support systems available to people. Way early in this study, when the children went between age 12 months and 18 months, we already were able to show that some children who had anxious attachments had secure attachments at the next assessment at 18 months. And what we found was that was predictable by the changes in life stress that their parents were facing the the reduction in stress of the parents predicted the children changing from anxious attachment to secure attachment age by age over the years we always showed that change was at least in part predictable by changes in social support and stress
2: wow that that's very hopeful and that's a message that we want to send
1: people have often asked Doesn't this study make you pessimistic when uh, by the time children are three years old, for example, we can predict dropping out of school with 77% accuracy? That's before they've even gone to school. People say, well, doesn't this make you pessimistic? Well, it doesn't because it's understandable why those children did not turn around if you know the continuing stresses and hardships that they and their families were facing. So it leads me to optimism because these problems are potentially solvable if society commits to doing that.
2: Well, they're solvable, and these high-risk children are identifiable. Indeed. That part's exciting, too.
1: Before they were born, some of our, our measures before the children are born, of mm-hmm. the parents' circumstances and the parents' expectations and the parents' own inner attitudes about themselves and parenting predict how well these children will do.
2: Mm-hmm. So you're not just talking about atta- the parent's attachment status per se?
1: No, but that's something right. that has been shown to predict. It's, it's a good predictor because it reflects a lot of different things. Your ability to make sense of your own attachment experiences often is related to other things such as support from your current partner and frankly we even have some evidence that uh, therapy is a relevant variable
2: <laughs> well that's that's very good news for us
1: we we could you know we could talk about a million things i'll just throw this one in
2: yes yeah do it please
1: when when we looked at parents at, at the children of parents where we knew the parent had been abused as a child Obviously, a history of abuse predicts abuse in the next generation. Everybody knows that. But, of course, the prediction is by no means perfect. Many kids grow up from being abused and don't abuse their children. We found three things accounted for that. One, those parents who were abused had an alternative, supportive adult figure in their lives growing up. Two, they had therapy in childhood beyond six months in duration. In a little brush with therapy didn't have any impact. It had to be therapy of some size. Mm-hmm. And three, they currently had a supportive partner. And if you'll note, all three of those things are relational things. The cure to uh, an inadequate relationship history is, is adequate relationships.
2: Yes. (laughs) That we can't uh, go in a closet and read a self-help book and and fix these things.
1: No, of course. Problems are entrenched, and I hope that's something we get into. Uh, One of the things I'm most interested in is why is change difficult? Why do children who have been not given adequate support as infants and toddlers Why don't they, when they go to preschool, here the preschool teachers are nice, why don't they then just get better? The answer to that question is the children bring forward those expectations. If you don't expect the teacher to be nurturant, you don't turn to the teacher when you're threatened or disappointed. And if you have negative expectations about relationships, you'll behave in ways that are off-putting. For example, being aggressive with other children or, for example, Mm -hmm. being ineffective in interacting because you get frustrated too easily. So children who bring forward these experiences recreate, through their interpretations and behaviors, more information that supports their pre-existing viewpoint. That's the problem. That's why intervention needs to be strategic. So teachers need to learn when a child makes you feel like you want to stuff them in the recycle barrel, that is precisely the child to not isolate and put in timeout by themselves. That's a child who already Mm -hmm. believes that you will reject him. So Mm -hmm. what you need to do is find a way, for example, have an aide go with the child to timeout. You know, it's not fun and games, but the child learns I can't do that behavior in there, but nothing I do will cause these people to reject and isolate me.
2: Mm-hmm. The stress response system and the interpersonal neurobi- neurobiology has that been incorporated into the research?
1: In adulthood. Or in adulthood. You have to recall when we started this study, nobody could have even taken cortisol measures.
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But I was just wondering, as you're saying this child brings forth...
1: What we've done and what's going on right now in our study is mostly health-related because it's well known that stress, and we are finding especially chronic early stress is related to inflammation and these other precursors of major disease processes in adults.
2: I'm thinking about the ACES study.
1: And and Mm. actually right now... People have been, they've been sending in a, an MRI study to follow up some of our kids with that technology. We weren't able to do any of that as children.
2: Right, they wouldn't have been available. But I just wonder if in your thinking of these developmental pathways and how that, that child will bring forward his expectations, would it be fair to say that some of what he's bringing forward is his nervous system's response? Without mm-hmm, any doubt.
1: Mm-hmm. The, the most exciting findings in in neuroscience in recent decades are findings concerning experience-dependent brain development. Of course, as parents are responsive to infant signals or are not, they're not only instilling in the child a belief that other people are there for you and that you're worthy of care and that you can be effective in getting care. They're literally entraining the central nervous system. You know, Alan Shore, Dan Siegel, lots of people have written a lot about this. It all goes together.
2: Yes, definitely.
1: It goes together so well that we were able to make all these predictions without having any of that knowledge because the behavior of the child will, of course, reflect the training of the nervous system. So kids that quickly get upset and and can't get themselves back together of course, that has to do with their their brains.
2: Well, what I love about it is it really takes out morality to this that these aren't bad kids; these aren't, you know, that it's, it's very de shame for adults that are go- looking back and trying to understand themselves. I have found that particularly the biology really helps with the shame of it, and you know, talking about it as strategies, adaptations, and strategies to keep them safe in a world that was threatening or, you know, not, not responsive enough is a... Now you mentioned life stress a couple of times. And I'm wondering, how is that defined exactly? Because I imagine most people perceive themselves as having stressful lives, you know, but I, I imagine you have a more specific idea about that.
1: It isn't moderate stress that causes problems. It really mm-hmm. isn't. It's mm-hmm. pretty massive life stress. I mean, if I told you some of the things about our sample, like the, uh, of our families moved more than four times in the first year.
2: Oh, wow, in the first year. Wow.
1: That's not a very common
2: occurrence. No, 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 it's not.
1: And, of course, you know, we were studying children of poverty.
2: Yes, I was very interested in the cultural pieces and the socioeconomics.
1: Of course, there was a lot more stress in those families. You couldn't have consistent daycare. You couldn't have consistent employment. You couldn't have consistent anything. So for the most part, you know, life is stressful, and, uh, you know, the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Of course, you, everybody's going to encounter stress and quite a bit of stress, but it can't be overwhelming stress, and it can't be chronic, and it can't be all the time. And the best thing parents can do is guard against their own stress level. Because remember, what we're measuring in the early years, before these kids grew up, we're measuring the stress as reported by the parents that they're experiencing. The whole key to parenting, and there's not, uh, you know, there's not a. I, I won't give people a checklist of do's right. and don'ts. The whole key is to be in a position where you have it to give emotionally to your child. So you're not overstressed. You have enough support behind you, and you have enough clarity about what your own vulnerabilities are, that you're free to respond to that child, to read the signals accurately, to not distort them, to not push them aside because you just don't have it right now to give. So that's that's the key to parenting. I was glad yeah. earlier that you said take the morality out of it. That's the one of the main reasons we studied context because it's not, we, we don't blame the parents either.
2: Right. Cause we could run it all the way up the line. Back to Adam uh, and Eve. The... Right. <laughs> but you know, it also, I, I heard you say earlier that some ways to intervene in the intergenerational transmission, you said that there were alternative supportive adult figures for the child So therapy could help if you if you keep them in therapy, you know, and then as they grow up, hopefully they'll choose a supportive partner. But that those are two things of the three that could be could be more immediate. And again, like you said, it's all relational. But like if we don't have it to give to help them connect to someone who does have more of it to give, i.e. therapy or extended family or, you know, like uh, put the oxygen mask on us first and take care of ourselves. And if we can't do that, help them connect with people who can.
1: Yeah. We need tons more support for daycare providers, preschool teachers, and teachers at all ages.
2: Oh, I love that. I love that. That's right. They're on the front lines. Yeah. Yeah. So then what about as they age? Can we uh, get in? Because um, I know some people are familiar with the you know, strange situation in the very young, but what does it look like in particularly, uh, you know selfishly I'm interested in adolescence because I have three, uh, <laughs> but in middle life and going forward? What have you learned?
1: All right. I'll, I'll give you a brief overview. First thing that should be said is that we haven't even mentioned uh, attachment specifically. Where, where attachment theory came into this work, strongly was, number one, it was the first theory that said how important your actual lived experience is. And Bowlby's theory was that uh, children that wind up not trusting others, well, that's because their past life wasn't worthy of trusting. And, you know, a kid winds up with a chip on his shoulder, that's because somebody put the chip on his shoulder.
2: That's right. He had good reason to.
1: So, and the other thing was, there was a way of, there was enough theory to to support a way of assessing how well babies were doing. And the value of the strange situation was that you could see in a rather brief period of time what the child's expectations were regarding that parent. And the theory is the expectations are built up over time through the interactions with the parent, and we have lots of data on that. People literally went in the homes and looked at how responsive parents were, and that predicted whether the children would be secure in their attachment at 12 months. And those positive expectations are are quite easy to see with training because you see, among other things, the child is comfortable exploring because the parent is there. Why are they comfortable exploring? Because they know if they run into a problem, they can turn to the parent, and the parent will respond. So now they're free to explore. You can see the expectations when they do get upset. They do turn to the parent. If, if they uh, bump themselves or something, they cry and reach their arms up, and the parent comes, picks them up, and they get settled. Why do they take that distress immediately to the parent? Because they believe the parent will solve the problem. Why do they get settled quickly? Because they already know, boy, once you have contact with the parent, it's going to be okay again. So that's infancy. Now you become two and you start having these autonomy strivings that can be challenging for parents. You need a lot of guidance. And at the same time, you need to begin to develop the sense that you can actually do things somewhat on your own. And that you actually can control yourself. In point of fact, as a toddler, you can't actually control yourself. But with the parent there helping you, you get the sense that you can control yourself. So now Mm -hmm. you not only have some attitudes about relationships are valuable, and I can count on people, but you also have a sense that I can manage myself perhaps. Now you go off to the preschool. And there, one of the big tasks is managing yourself. You're expected Mm -hmm. to follow the rules and to exploit the opportunities that are in that rich environment. And since you have the positive expectations towards people, you're more able to engage peers and go to the teachers when you can't do something with your own resources. You expect the teachers will respond to you positively. Why not? That's what you've known. That's what people do. When another child gets injured, you're empathic. Why would you be empathic? Because that's what you've learned about how relationships work. When I've been in need, my needs were responded to. That's the way relationship works. Now there's another in need. I'll respond. You know, mainly I'll go get a teacher to help you hmm. Whereas another child, same situation, a child gets injured, says she says, oh, my tummy hurts. Another child will go over and poke her right where she said it hurt. Well, that child has learned how relationships work also. When I've been in need, when I've taken a tender feeling to somebody, they've rebuffed me or made it worse somehow. That's the way relationships work. Both of those kids are equally smart. They both understand the other kid's distress because their stomach hurts. But they react very differently. The preschool world is one that we could talk about forever. The challenges are, are great. You have to learn how to interact with peers and sustain interactions. And while we might not think that's so hard, keep in mind that these peers also don't know how to do this. Right. And they're, they have the same limits you do of understanding the other's point of view. You know what you want, and you're trying to communicate that to them. They know what they want. They're trying to communicate it to you. But neither of you has much of an ability to understand what the other wants.
2: Yes, and there's no one kind of helping you along.
1: <laughs> but what's, what helps you along is this background belief that relationships are worth it, that I can Mm -hmm. do it and the capacities to stay organized even though it's difficult and to persist so well we could go on there for a long time if you have this background of responsive care and support and you can engage the preschool in this positive way I'm describing you now have even more belief that adults are available to you you have more belief in yourself as a play partner, as a person who can do relating to other kids. And you have more evolved capacity for self-management. You're ready for school. You go into the world of school, you're not going to get quite as much nurturance from teachers. But you're not going to need it. It's been internalized. You can go to them when you have a real problem. And you can have good relationships with teachers. You like them. We ask when our children, I'm going to use that word all the time even though now they're adults, when they were 19 years old, one of the questions we asked them was, did you ever have a, a teacher as you went through school that was really you, that was really special and that you knew this person was really in your camp, was really behind you, was really a support to you? Did you ever have a relationship with a teacher like that? And the kids with these secure backgrounds very frequently named not just one, but more than one teacher like that. Mm -hmm. And some of the kids, especially those with the avoidant histories of chronic rebuff and rejection, looked at us like that was an impossibly stupid question. A teacher? Are you kidding? Never had such a thing. Isn't that poignant? It's It's so sad. And, of course, they didn't have such a thing because they were kids that caused trouble for teachers and didn't expect much of teachers. It's uh, an interesting thing to watch over time, the doors close.
2: Well, you know, it makes me think too, from a clinical standpoint, what you said was when we asked the question, they, they kind of look at you like you have three heads or, you know, like it was a stupid question. And that kind of like shutting down becomes really interesting clinically because then of course, as the researcher, the person that's in relationship with them it doesn't encourage more questions or more inquiry so it's, it's that's a, a teeny tiny example of how it gets enacted in the world going forward because then I, I feel embarrassed about my dumb question and so I'm gonna withdraw you know <laughs> and um,
1: you do have to know as a clinician that there are people that see things way differently than you do and they mm-hmm. come by these viewpoints honestly they're deeply held they've been confirmed over and over for them. You know, believe me, those kids that said that kind of thing, they had had bad experiences with teachers. And it's not because the teachers didn't want to do better. I'm going to tell you something about middle childhood in a minute, but I want to drop back to preschool and tell your folks about a dream that one of our children had. Oh, great. We'll call her Vera. She was a child from a real rejecting history and terrible trauma. Don't even want to go into it just uh, really tough stuff. But this one teacher really took a liking to her. She was kind of an appealing child. She was very bright, one of the highest IQs in our sample, but really troubled and emotionally very volatile. But this teacher had developed a relationship with her over time. This teacher was the most nurturant, gentle soul you could have ever met, sweet, sweet person. They'd been getting close. And so one day Vera came in and said, I had this dream last night. And I dreamed that you threw me against the wall. And the teacher said, Vera, I would never do that. And, and Vera then said, why not? The mm-hmm. teacher had to explain to her, well, because I love you. And then Vera said, why? That anecdote says the whole thing of what the legacy oh, of early experience is. And you could well imagine this volatile child who would, you know, fly into rages at times. You could imagine Mm -hmm. uh, an ordinary mere human teacher who wasn't in our posh nursery school setting where we had two teachers and four aides and 20 children would not be able to give her that gentleness consistently over and over
2: Mm hmm. Yeah, it makes me really, really think about the impact for our educators that it doesn't, you know, because that's now uh, challenging her model. I think of the model almost as the hard wiring, you know, and it's, it's laying down, you know, it's challenging the default network.
1: That's what we all want to do. We want to disconfirm the model they bring with them. And that Mm -hmm. that implies to the kid who comes in all cute and cuddly and seeing their job in life as taking care of the teachers emotionally. We don't want them doing that either. That's not their job. You know, sometimes a teacher has to uh, push a kid along and sometimes she has to not let him go even when he wants to go off by himself. You just have to Mm -hmm. be as close to him as he as he will tolerate.
2: Well, that's good. I lo- I lo- well, I love the emphasis on um, how individual people can make impact in these families, because, I, again, I think that's very hopeful, and it's very, uh, what you're saying is it's science-backed, that this is true. In a way, it's like, don't give up on these kids, but really, those are the ones to move towards.
1: I always said that when uh, we had these summer camps when the kids were 10, uh, again, I got to, I got to know uh, a lot of them in a more personal way and since i you know i couldn't do any ratings or contribute any data because i knew too much we always had completely different people do the assessments at every age so the people that mm-hmm. came to the camp the counselors at the camp they'd never seen the kids before they knew nothing about them but i did so i could get to know them and watch and see what was mm-hmm. going on and i concluded at that time there wasn't a child there despite some terrible histories, including Vera was one of our campers, there mm-hmm. wasn't a child there that I didn't think could be, at that point, still rescued. I oh, that's fully great. believe that. One gets a little more pessimistic over time about individual kids, but I know when mm-hmm. they're children, they can all be reached. I absolutely mm-hmm. know that. Not to understate how challenging it would be. I mean, uh, our nursery school in no means healed Vera. I would not mm-hmm. want you you to think that. You know, half day, five days a week for 20 weeks was not enough. She subsequently, mm-hmm. actually, I happen to know, had a lot of therapy, and that was mm-hmm. helpful too. I retired, so I'm only on the outside of the project looking in now, so I mm-hmm. don't know what she's like as, at age 40. What I do know of, personal cases of kids whose lives are really tough, who are doing fine. And, of course, I know other kids whose lives were good and were doing just great as children who are struggling as adults. I mean, you know, life is tough. We all go through ups and downs, and there's no no guarantees here of, of any of this.
2: Well, one of the things that gets tossed around, and I don't know if this is true. This is a is this true or not question? I hear that people say that if you get with a secure partner, and you're not there yet yourself, that even without therapy in approximately five, some, for some reason what's said is in five years of being with a secure partner, you can convert. Does that have any basis in reality?
1: Some, that went a little further than I would go, but it's the, okay. same, with, it's the same with all of our findings. These things are probabilistic. In fact, we did adult attachment interviews at two ages, 19 and 26. And, in Mm -hmm. fact, we found changes from non-secure state of mind to secure state of mind. The major predictor was a stable relationship being formed in the intervening years. It's trickier than that because, Mm -hmm. of course, your odds of finding a secure partner or forming a secure partnership are better if you have a secure history yourself. And it's also the case, I'll tell you another finding, and I think this will say a lot in in one single finding. We followed kids who were depressed as adolescents or had conduct problems. We followed them into adulthood. Some, the problems had remitted by adulthood. So we wanted to know what accounted for it. And we did find evidence that a supportive relationship was the best predictor. For conduct problems, we also found having stable employment was good. But there's more to it than that. Because some of the children who were depressed or had conduct problems as adolescents, in fact, had been secure as infants and young children. And it was those people who had been secure, who were more likely to remit having formed a partnership. In other words, Mm -hmm. the partnership provided a turning point, but people with security in their background were more able to take advantage of that turning point. We say development is cumulative. You don't lose any of it. It's all there. And so people with secure histories who experience bad times, it doesn't erase the secure history.
2: And would we say that it's also true that when we have a harsh uh, or hard or neglectful early life, that even when we're doing better, that we are at risk of going back into these old representations?
1: You know, you'd put it in terms of yeah, risk or vulnerability. I mean, people mm-hmm. who experience a lot of loss and rejection are more vulnerable to becoming depressed in the face of a loss. So those people, even if they had gotten better, they're still more vulnerable. That doesn't mean they will. It means they are going to need more support in the face of a loss than some people would need. I don't mind at my age. I'm I'm old enough that I can say this. I didn't exactly have a great childhood. I was not exactly you know, functioning on all cylinders as I grew up. I did well in school, which was a good break. So I, I take a, not only a long-term view of this stuff, I take a personal view of it. I definitely believe it's never too late to get better, and I also know that the issues you've had all your life, you will still have. That doesn't mean they need to handicap you anymore. That's the goal mm-hmm. of therapy, remove the handicap. You're not going to remove the issue. I just don't. Think, right. I just don't think you can.
2: Well, again, I really just love the gentleness of that because so many, and, and you know, the, I mean, I have a similar history, and many of us in the helping professions do, and. So this interaction between getting better being able to bring our own earned secure status and you know one of the things I like about this and I always sort of brag to people about it is if if this is true again you can tell me this that earned secure adults tend to have very strong reflective function you know, when you're naturally secure, it's good, but, you know, you haven't really worked on it that hard. So it's just naturally good. <laughs> but Earn Secure, we've really, really worked on it. <laughs> I thought that that was, I thought that was some of Fonagy's work uh, on reflective function.
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't go that far. And, and my <laughs> take <thing, my laughs> on Earn Secure, I only wish we had a different label for it. Because it carries the implication that you did it on your own. And the research really flies in the face of that idea. You didn't do it on your own. You got some other help later. You had some islands Mm -hmm. of support earlier. You know, when you give the AAI, people can't remember earlier than age five. So nobody's describing their infancy to you. And it's not that, of course, people do recover. I just told you, we, we studied that and we found in particular they can change their AAI. That's the whole thing with resiliency. It's a wonderful label, but it's not a cause of anything. It's a description, because usually, you know, some, you know, kids have hardship, and some don't have problems, and we say, "Well, they were resilient." Yeah, we know that because they had a hardship and they don't have problems. That, by definition, right. we know that. <laughs> That's not. A, that doesn't explain right. what happened. Or some kids who have a difficult time get better later. They're resilient. Yeah, but you didn't explain why they got better later. Saying they're resilient doesn't explain it. We did study after study of that kind of developmental change from trouble to better, and always we could account for those changes, the vast portion of the variance, in some cases. And, of course, you know, we can't account for it all, but that's because we can't measure everything. We don't know everything about somebody's life. But nobody pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps.
2: It's all relational healing and growing and developing new neural networks to have new experiences and new expectations. If I'm understanding correctly that there's kind of a there's a behavioral piece, there's a representational piece. And then and now we're understanding that there's this biologic piece that all go together. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. Okay.
2: So what about the role of, like, let's say somebody's had a very rough history. We don't know from five on before, you know, we can't self-report that. Like, I want to give hope to even those ones that, you know, what can we do to even, even in gradations, add to moments of security and moments of grounding and moments of an organization in one's mind and coherence?
1: Well, that is what therapy is about. I have seen it happen with many people I know, that they get more integrated through therapy experiences. You know, if Mm -hmm. if you're really talking about negative histories that began early, there's not going to be a quick fix to that. But it will happen over time. Some of these kids that were uh, adopted from institutions in China and Europe and whatnot, some of those kids come out okay. How on earth did that happen? Because a lot of them Mm -hmm. really had no good attachment experiences at all in the first couple of years. So obviously it's possible to do this. As long as we don't think you can do it instantly, as long as we don't think that they won't still have gaps that are there that, and particular challenges, mm-hmm.
2: Well, that's right. And, you know, again, just knowing many, many therapists that do this work, it's like, I don't don't think that there's any illusion of it happening quickly. But I know that we are all very interested in being as effective as we can, because we know the challenge and so we we want like the very best state of the art what is going to work and so this is you know this has been this journey of sort of collecting how to be most most effective relationally to build from all three perspectives the behavior the representations and even the physiology
1: to the extent that you have a deep understanding of these things i think it will help you relate to the person with the kind of compassion that you need <laughs> which, which doesn't mean you know to excuse when when a client mistreats you, that doesn't mean mm-hmm. you you know don't let them know that it hurts your feelings or something. In fact, that's part of having a honest relationship with them.
2: Absolutely, they need that kind of feedback.
1: I know there are people out there that know how to do this deep relational therapy well, I'm not one of them mm-hmm. i'm not, I'm not a therapist, <laughs> so i can't I can't really speak to that at all.
2: Are you familiar with David Elliott and Dan Brown's work? The book is Attachment, Disturbances in Adults, Comprehensive Treatment and Repair. Just fantastic. I love it. And as a matter of fact, I loved it so much. We're bringing David Elliott to Austin to be able to work with uh, the therapists here directly to incorporate some of these things. And you had mentioned before Arietta Slade's book, Attachment in the Relational.
1: Attachment in the Therapeutic Process.
2: And the therapeutic process. So I'll put that in the show notes as well, as far as someone that you really respect. Uh, you also mentioned Dan Siegel and his all of his work.
1: There's a book back aways that was based on one of those UCLA conferences called Healing Trauma. That's one that has mm-hmm. some good chapters in it.
2: And then what about in the last decade or so? It's been, I know the papers, and again, for those listeners, check out the show notes. There's going to be... Some amazing, rich resources there. But just while I have you, you know, how is this evolving? And or do you have any surprises or things that you're learning or, or confirming in the last ten years or so?
1: Unfortunately, the powers that be stopped funding us to study psychopathology. That mm. was too bad because that yes. would that would have been very interesting to follow up the continuity and change there, and, and especially you know to get more deeply into the adult problems, so yes. we got funded by actually the National Institute of Aging, mm-hmm. which is odd since, you know, we were child development people, but they um, they have come to the understanding that all the chronic diseases of middle and late age adulthood likely have earlier origins, and so mm-hmm. that's what we've been doing. and. As I mentioned to you before, we have found that our measures of stress, even from early childhood, and some evidence that early childhood stress is the most powerful, is related to markers of inflammation and other cardiac issues. I mean, Mm -hmm. most of these people don't have serious heart disease yet, so we can't answer that question yet. But we can answer the question that the precursors are being predicted by the early stress measures. Now, that doesn't doesn't have to do especially with attachment, and I would love for those who continue to work on the project, and I, I tell them this every chance I get. Since I'm retired and not doing it, I tell them what I wish they would do, is to study how well, as adults, the children we followed are able to create good social support networks and whether mm-hmm. those social support networks mitigate the relation between stress they experienced early and these adult measures. I can't answer that question, but that's the kind of thing that we're interested in.
2: Right. Looking at these transitions and developmental. Moments where that there's opportunities to change. You know, we were we were thinking of that even as through the life, through and, and the elderly, and as as you lose functioning and you lose people and you lose relationships. That's a whole interesting way of thinking. We'll
1: study that with our sample because I think that all of us doing something for forty years is pretty long, and everybody's yes. pretty <laughs> much out of, everybody's pretty much out of gas at this point. You want to hear uh, something about adolescents?
2: Yes, yes, yes. Please.
1: I'll just tell you my favorite finding from adolescence. We had a bunch of these kids come to uh, another camp situation as adolescents, so we could not only interview them, we could observe them, and you know who formed couples and and yeah. and how the how the crowd formed. You know the the clique of the popular kids, and and who could deal with. You know we did we did these upward bound trust exercises and stuff, and of course you know some of the kids would do totally terrible things to the partner who was trusting in them and stuff and it was interesting but one thing one thing we decided to measure was we asked the uh, camp counselors, and again, these would be new people that didn't know these kids' histories, and we came up with this scale that we called. Capacity for vulnerability, because there were all these situations in the camp, like there was a dance and a party and uh, the trust exercises. There are all these situations where adolescent feelings of vulnerability would come up, and yet to engage fully in the camp experiences, you needed to somehow be able to get beyond that, you know, tolerate them right. and, and go on. So it was a complicated scale to write and a complicated description. But our counselors, you know, who did know, you know, they, they didn't know these kids, but they knew teenagers, they got it. They knew what we were asking for and So they rated everybody on capacity for vulnerability. I just stunned that secure attachment in infancy predicted that very nicely all those years. That's what you get from, you get the ability to put your feelings into relationships. And mm-hmm. I think that's a legacy of early experience. Yes, you can. You know, you can patch it up and create it. You know, as we talked about earlier. I've been trying to do that for the last twenty years or so. to, <laughs> get, to, to get to where I can be mm-hmm. fully vulnerable and present in a relationship. Fortunately, I you know. fortunately, I didn't die at fifty, so I still have a shot at it. <laughs> I, I I truly believe you can do that. I think my wife would mm-hmm. even tell you, yes. When I married <laughs> this guy, he was a long ways from that, but yeah, he he's getting there.
2: But what well, I love it. It's it's actually it's actually quite organizing because if nothing else, you know, when we can boil things down, at least it's the right path that turning towards people, you know, the social engagement system, working on the capacity for vulnerability. These are all great directions that will, will have the same, ca- just like the negative stuff has a cascade in one direction, but being able to find your distress and feel your need and share that with someone else, regardless of where you come from, would be a good direction to point in general.
1: It's absolutely critical. One of the things that we measure, in, in addition to the AAI in adulthood is we do the CRI, which is close relationship inventory. So it's Mm -hmm. adjectives about your partner. That's a real good measure. Oh, really? We directly observe couple interaction in a variety of settings. And the main thing we look at is, can you give support? Can you receive support? Giving and receiving support, that's another, that's a legacy of attachment. You can, you can, you can be emotionally engaged in relationships and you can also both ask for and receive support and you can give it.
2: Uh, That's, that's, again, these are like these are take homes and takeaways for people to, um, if you don't know anything else, you know, do these things. So I think that's great. Are there any, you know, there's so many online attachment inventories and things like that that we have, we do not recommend, you know, because there's so many people listening. I know people are going to be interested in learning about themselves. At
1: this point, there is no questionnaire you can give to people. It there's no short way of probing the mind of an adult. People have been trying to find it. Even people who, who developed the AI tried to find it. They, you right. know, they make a questionnaire and they see how it relates to the AI and so forth. Uh, I don't and know so of the, any short form that does, that does this big job. I do right. think, however, that what, what clinicians can do without being trained in the adult attachment interview, what they can do is understand this framework as deeply as possible. I'm trying to work on a a new book with my wife to make this easier, but but that's going to take a while. But understand it as deeply as possible. And as you really develop your relationship with a client, you will get what you could have gotten from the AAI pretty much. And you'll you'll know whether they can remember things from their childhood. You'll know whether they... are at ease in talking with it, or they say, "No, I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk about it." It's not that hard. Mm-hmm. And you'll
2: yeah, if they know if they know what to listen for.
1: Preoccupied people, mm-hmm. they'll mm-hmm. drive you mm-hmm. crazy.
2: <laughs> and so, self-report in general, when people learn about this and they say, "Oh, I'm definitely this or that," I understand that's not to be very reliable as well.
1: Well, it just it just doesn't have the support you'd want it to have. Those yep. measures yep. correlate with personality measures. And mm-hmm. interestingly, the adult attachment interview doesn't correlate with personality measures. It's not a personality measure. Mm-hmm. It's a measure mm-hmm. of your state of mind regarding attachment.
2: Which is largely unconscious, which is part of why we, it's hard to self-identify where we are.
1: That's why I'm not saying those... the. Attachment questionnaires of various stripes. I'm not saying they don't measure anything, but I'm saying there isn't evidence that they measure this thing. So if this is the thing you're interested in, unfortunately, I don't know of any cheap.
2: Right. And and when you say this this thing, do you mean the AAI specifically, or are you talking about attachment representation in general?
1: I mean the adult state of mind regarding attachment,
2: yeah. Okay, right, right, right. And what do you think about Carol George's work in the AAP? Is that needs, equal? Needs, like, if somebody it needs more ahead. research,
1: and and okay. that's not you know I've I've known Carol for a long time, like her quite well. I'm not saying it's not good. I'm saying the AAI has had tremendous amount of validating research. We know it yeah. does. It doesn't correlate with IQ. That's important. It doesn't correlate with verbal ability. If you give the AAI and ask somebody to and you ask questions about their relationship with their boss, that doesn't relate at all to the coherent scores and whatnot with the AAI about your parents. It should
0: right.
1: it's specifically right. a measure of this. You need to do so much research to show that these measures are good. Yeah. That, that's why yeah. the strange situation. I wouldn't even advise anybody using it if it weren't for the fact that it relates to what you'd see if you went in the home and observed for hours on end. That's what we're wanting to know. We're wanting to know, is this child confident in the parent's responsiveness? Other yeah. measures of representation, drawings, story stems, and so forth, they all get a piece of it. We used all of them. We did drawings. We did stories. We did TAT cards. We did mm-hmm. sentence completions. We did moral fables. We did all those measures, and they all work a bit. But they don't work well enough that you can say, if this child's drawing shows the parents with their arms at the side, that means this child's avoidant.
2: Right, 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 right. Even though no.
1: more often than the other kids, the avoidant ones drew pictures like that. Mm-hmm. But, you, but you can't go from group data to making individual statements. Right,
2: right. Then this is actually, this is really helpful, just to get very clear about this, because I can guarantee you people want to be able to just take a test. And uh, so two two things real quickly. Uh, One is the adult relational attachment of shaver and those things with the dimensions. That's also, again, it's looking at something different. It's not the same thing as these early attachment representations.
1: Some people have used the adult attachment interview and scored it dimensionally, and that seems to be just about as good as the categories but it's doing the whole AAI and it's being trained right in, in the thing right
2: right okay and then what about culture and class related to this
1: uh, with regard to the strange situation and with regard to attachment theory in infancy it's pretty culturally robust the first study was done in Uganda in a small village as a long way from berkeley there are situations like in traditional japanese family the strange situation wasn't very good to use because those mm-hmm. kids never experienced any separations at all so their reaction to the 3 minute separation was like trauma
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that so there are times when a particular measure isn't good but the mm-hmm. theory has worked that the idea of secure base you know, responsiveness to signals leading to a secure base, as if the parents respond to the kid's signals, the child will come to treat the parent as a base of security and be able mm-hmm. to explore. That's been done with street children in Chile. That's been done all over the place. That works.
0: The
1: theory, mm-hmm. the theory okay. is works. Particular measures may not. And, of course, with the AAI, it's a language-based thing. That's mm-hmm. tough. Translating that into Korean, that's challenging. And then you have sure. a culture where uh, I'll never say anything bad about my father, you know. you, you know, you just, Well, that's different. So you you do have to make adjustments procedurally. In Mexico, you know, they have the days of the dead. Well, a big sign of being unresolved is, in your discourse, treating someone who's deceased as though they're alive. Well, you're dealing with a Mexican sample. You better be careful about interpreting that, you know, what they say there. You Mm -hmm. might need to have more probes. Of course, they don't really think they're alive, you know. But they're going to talk about it. I mean, you know, they set out food for them for crying out loud, which is fine. So culture is important. Culture influences the expression of things. Mm-hmm. The culture is tremendously important, but it does not shake attachment theory one bit.
2: That's what I was getting at. That's really great. And what about the socioeconomics? Is there any way that this is measuring? You had mentioned therapy in childhood over six months, and
1: we our first study was with middle class kids up through mm-hmm. from age five. From him, and then the second study with poverty kids, things work just the same. It's easier okay. to study. It's easier to study middle class kids because all your measures will be more stable because their lives are more stable. Mm -hmm. But there's no reason to think... This is a pan-human theory. And in fact, this this theory pretty well applies to primates. Really? When I do my training, I always show people a film of a gorilla, and I used to show some chimpanzees. We and chimpanzees had a common ancestor way back, and attachment goes back at least that far.
0: That's very interesting.
1: Attachment meaning... When you're threatened, you run to a particular conspecific, is the word, whoever is your secure base. And you can see this, boy, you can see this in monkeys. You scare a monkey, a baby monkey, and they'll fly to their parent and wrap around them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, this, the theory is general. It's about as general as the theory of evolution, and it's about as well-grounded.
2: And so, with the chimpanzees, the categories work that there may, may be oh, chimps no, that
1: that that, that I, uh, I that I couldn't. Yeah, say. yeah okay. In fact, you're going to have so few rejecting mothers in monkey, you know, North right? East.
2: Well, I mean, we've got Har- we've got Harlow's monkeys, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's,
1: it's, yeah, he he sort of showed how strong the attachment bias is.
2: Yes, for the soft mother versus the milk,
1: right. It's not about the milk. It's about yep. it's about protection when I'm frightened. That's what it's uh-huh.
2: is about. Yes, this has been so great. And I, uh, by the way, if you have that, uh, vid- that video of the gorillas or the chimpanzees, that uh, if you think that would be worthwhile, I, I don't.
1: Um, I don't have permission to share that.
2: Okay. Okay. No worries. Um, well, great. Well, you, you have given us permission, however, as I understand it, to post um, a couple of your articles online. So listeners can check that out. And thank you very much for listening. I'm going
1: to send you a I'll send you a slide of a picture of our book cover too. the development of the person.
2: And that's your most recent one. Is that right?
1: Unfortunately, yes. 2005. <laughs> I haven't. I I've, I've edited some books since then. Most recent book I edited is in Spanish, so that's not generally helpful, but if you have Spanish listeners, there are this these ideas are available in Spanish now.
2: Oh, that's actually really helpful. And you know, he's he's saying that uh uh it's been a while since he's uh, published, however, if when you look at his background, this is a prolific writer and author and leader in the field. and again, we 'll put your bio and everything online so people can really understand where you're coming from. So development of the person, one of the things you said that that was a really good summary of much of the research. And that will be again, we'll link that in the show notes. Well, thank you so much. Uh, This has been very, very helpful and informative. And it keeps us on track to make sure that we're saying the right things and that it's research based. So
1: well, thank you. I enjoyed talking with you.
2: Thank you for listening. We want to thank Jack Anderson, who is our editor, audio editor, and he also does our intros. And he has just done a fantastic job for us. So want to give him a shout out. And in addition As you know, we have this conference coming up April 7th with David Elliott, who is the author we mentioned on this podcast of attachment disturbances in adults, comprehensive treatment and repair. So go to our website, therapistuncensored.com, look at events. Finally, last thing, we are also uh, taking names for the next reading group that we're going to do. You can also find that on our website, uh, therapistuncensored.com. And you go to events and you click on online reading group and you can sign up there. We know that that will fill. That'll probably start in April, most likely. And in the meantime, please feel free to share this with anyone you think may be interested. Uh, We appreciate you listening. See you soon.
0: Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.